the attorney stood up and he said, the men, he called the participants the men, the men have asked me to speak on their behalf. And he said, we've been sitting here for three days listening to person after person talk about how few people of color there are in cancer clinical trials. They are very proud of the fact that because of what they went through, there are all these safeguards in place now. If people of color don't participate in trials, then what they went through is in vain. This is the Innovatively Speaking podcast brought to you by the Medical University of South Carolina. It's a place where we dive into the origins of the next big things, the who, the why, and the how. And we explore ideas that are changing what's possible here at MUSC, but hopefully all across the world as well. I'm Kevin Smith here in the MUSC podcast studio with my co-host, the Chief Innovation Officer here at MUSC, Dr. Jesse Goodwin. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning to you. All right, today we are going to be talking to Dr. Marvella Ford about health inequalities, amongst other things. Tell me a little bit about Dr. Ford and why you chose her as a guest. Yeah, so diversity, equity, and inclusion are really important to MUSC. It's a part of our strategic plan and, and really fundamental to how we think about where we want to go as an organization. Um, I also think that given the fact that we live in a pr- pretty rural uh, state that has a lot of inequity in terms of uh, healthcare outcomes, it's important for us to be really laser focused on it. And Marvella is someone whose whole body of work is really geared towards addressing uh, these types of disparities that we see. And she's a really wonderful example of how we can start to make meaningful improvements with a lot of care and dedication and focused attention. So I'm I'm really excited to hear uh, about all of her work on today's episode. Sounds exciting. Let's dive right in. Well, Dr. Marvella Ford, welcome to the MUSC podcast studio. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we were talking uh, beforehand about all of your titles. You've got a lot of really interesting and impressive titles. Can you maybe tell us a little bit what you do here at MUSC? Absolutely. So I've been here at MUSC since 2005, and I'm a professor in the Department of Public Health Sciences. I'm also with the Hollings Cancer Center as their Associate Director of Population Sciences and Cancer Disparities. And I also direct the Office of Community Outreach and Engagement at the Hollings Cancer Center. You sound like a busy lady. It's a lot of fun. We have, it's like a mission and we are working with partners across the state to affect change. So it's very exciting to see the changes that have taken place over this time period. Well, in my notes here, it says, Dr. Ford is a researcher whose interests include evaluating the impact of patient navigation interventions on healthcare behavior. Let's start there. Absolutely. So South Carolina is a very rural state. Um, We have a lot of areas in the state that are rural, so even if an entire county isn't designated as rural, it has areas that are rural. And we also have a population that is 27%, uh, comprised of uh, 27% of black people. So South Carolina has some unique needs in comparison to other other states in South Carolina. And it's really important for us to identify factors that contribute to the, the differences in cancer death rates among black people and rural people here in South Carolina. Can you give us those, those uh, rates? Well, right now, I mean, we're, we're pleased to report that the cancer death rates have decreased for black and white populations in South Carolina. However, there's still a large gap between the two groups. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. We also have a lot of um, black, white, and urban rural Uh, disparities in cancer death rates. So what that shows us is there's opportunity. 
for intervention. So a lot of the work that we're doing in community outreach and engagement is designed to close those gaps and improve uh, cancer outcomes for all people. The, the great thing that's innovative about health equity is that when we improve outcomes for one group, we improve the outcomes for all groups for all people. I love that. And, and Marvella, sometimes on this show, we start with pain points, right? Because I am a big believer that innovation really should be a solution to a pain point. Um, and the, the gaps in terms of death rates is obviously a pain point. But if we sort of start to dig into maybe why those exist, what do you see as some of the pain points that we have either within the state or within certain populations that start to drive at why perhaps um, those gaps exist um, and that you're starting to focus on? That's a great question. So when we look at access to care, that's a major gap. Um, When we look at lack of access to cancer screening, uh, lack of opportunity for cancer screening, and and really helping people um, to gain treatment. So patient navigation is an evidence-based intervention that has been shown to be effective in helping underserved populations access healthcare. So patient navigation is kind of like global positioning systems or GPS, where we get in our cars and we turn on the GPS, we put in the destination, and then we get turn-by-turn directions of how to get there. That's what patient navigators are. Patient navigators can outreach to community members to bring them into the healthcare system, and they can also provide navigation to guide patients through the process of receiving screening and gaining diagnostic workup if they need it, and then getting the treatment that they need. And what we've seen is that navigators are really needed in underserved communities and in rural communities. So some of the barriers that that people in communities may face to getting screened for cancer is lack of access to screening, lack of transportation, having to take days off work when they work in jobs where if they don't work, they don't get paid. So then we're talking to people about getting screened for something that they may not have or getting a paycheck. So what we do at Hollings is we try to make the screening as convenient for people as possible. We have a large mobile uh, mammography unit for breast and cervical cancer screening that goes out to rural areas of the state. We take the screening to the community members. And we take our commitment to the people in our community very seriously. So from the time they step foot on the mobile health unit, we then track them and navigate them to make sure that they get the screening and then the appropriate follow-up care that they need. We also have a new um, program. It's called the HPV VaxVan program at Hollings. We're really happy about this. We just literally rolled it out last fall. And we've partnered with a lot of school districts across the state to provide screening, to provide vaccination for uh, the human papillomavirus. This is a cancer prevention measure. So getting vaccinated with the HPV vaccine protects against six different types of cancer, including cervical cancer and other cancers as well. Um, So... A lot of parents, once they hear that this is about cancer prevention, they want to get their children vaccinated. And so we've we've had great partnerships with school districts, with school nurses. Um, I like to use the Cherokee County School District as an example. 
So we were meeting with them to plan the visit of our HPV Vax van to their school district. And the school district leader said, well, what if we did a town hall meeting for parents? So we planned a virtual, a one-hour virtual town hall meeting. The first speaker, um, we worked with the school district on the agenda. The first speaker was Ms. Cody, who's a science teacher and who talked about her experiences um, being diagnosed with a high-risk HPV type 18 years ago before a vaccine was available. And she talked about some of the invasive procedures that she's had to, gone, had to go through as a result. And, that, and how she wished a vaccine had been available that would have prevented her from having to go through all of this discomfort. The second speaker was her son, CJ, who's 14 years old, and he talked about his decision-making process and what prompted him to get vaccinated with the HPV vaccine. And he said, after seeing what his mom has gone through, he wouldn't want to be the cause of giving a virus to some uh, someone else and having them go through what his mom has gone through. And he talked about cancer prevention and who wouldn't want to get vaccinated against cancer. And interestingly, he also shared that on his own, he started reading, he just finished reading The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. So um, he talked about how if a vaccine had been available for her, she also might not have died. So that was such a powerful town hall meeting. The speakers only spoke for 30 minutes. We also had our own um, Dr. Uh, Jimmy Roberts, who's the medical director for the HPV vaccine program, and Dr. Gerlinda Ross, who's a gynecologic oncologist here at MUSC, as well as local nurses who spoke 30 minutes. The, whole, the other 30 minutes, we took questions from parents. That... Um, virtual town hall meeting was recorded and posted on Cherokee County's website, and it's had more than 800 hits. We've also shared it with other school districts across the state with their permission of the Cherokee County School District, and Ms. Cody is the newest member of our Hollings Community Advisory Board. <laughs> wow. That's really fantastic, and um, I think it goes a long way probably to have uh, someone who's a trusted community member, you know, the science teacher there who the parents know, and then and then someone who is a teen also speaking from very personal experience. Um, you know, it, it takes it one step closer towards um, relatability, I guess, maybe the word I'd be looking for there. So Yeah, these are the community members actually speaking out before the, the professionals come in to, to reinforce that. That's fascinating. Um, well, tell us a little bit about some of the other initiatives that, that you are working on right now. I know you've got a full plate. Great. So we also have the SC Amen program, which is a program that promotes prostate cancer education and navigation to screening for black men. So we just rolled that program out last fall, and we've now um, enrolled 156 black men into that, into that project. 93% of them have now been screened for prostate cancer or made an appointment to get screened. That's huge because when they were enrolled, 88% of the men were behind in their prostate cancer screening. And why is the SCA men program important? It's important because in South Carolina, the prostate cancer death rate is about two and a half times higher for black men than for white men. So it's really imperative that we get the word out to promote prostate cancer screening among the men in this group. And to that end, 
just recently we, we partnered with the Prostate Health Education Network, which is a national group, and they approached us and we developed a list of community leaders across the state from Greenville to Charleston and all points in between in East and West. And they developed, they actually uh, recorded a series of ads, public service announcements promoting prostate cancer screening among black men as radio and video ads. We then held a prostate cancer rally that was virtual and it was recorded and that's now posted on FEN's website. So we're really excited about our statewide partners as well as our national partners in promoting community outreach and engagement. So you are clearly doing a lot uh, in terms of community engagement and outreach on the screening side. Um, I know that you're the co-director of our South Carolina Translational Research Institute, which we call SECTOR. Um, They're Integrating Special Populations, I believe is the group name uh, that focuses, I believe, on enrollment in clinical trials. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the importance of getting those specialized populations in a more diverse uh, clinical trial group um, and some of your efforts there? Absolutely. So through the Integrating Special Populations component of the of our CTSA, which um, I co-lead the ISP with Dr. Tino Lopez, um, and we have a great team. Um, we have worked with NRDNA SC, so that team has been phenomenal. NRDNA SC is looking for genomic markers of cancer, um, hereditary breast cancer and other, other types of cancer. It's a fabulous project, and it's statewide. If anyone wants to enroll, they can just go to the NRDNA SC website and find out more information. But we started working with the investigators early on um, because it is a very large um, study and people are asked to give a, to give a saliva sample. Um, we wanted to make sure that the voices of the community were included in the design of, of the study. And so the investigators, Dr. Zoss and others, have been absolutely open, welcoming. Dr. Judge, um, who's the PI of the study, have, they've been so open. Um, so we recommended establishing a community advisory board, and we, we uh, gave them the names of, of some people who could serve, and I think everyone said yes. So they have a wonderful statewide uh, a community advisory board uh, that's made up of people from across the state. We also talked to them about their materials, and so we've helped to review to make sure that they're in plain language and understandable to community members. And then we've worked through data transparency. What happens when people give their data? What happens, um, who sees it, who has access? So all of that is completely transparent and shared with community members. And it's really great. Um, This study is doing so well that I recently had a call from the um, uh, interim director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, who's a colleague and friend of mine, who heard about NRDNA-SC. We did a press release um, last year, and so it came to his attention. So we actually just met with the NIH recently. They were very interested in the study and very pleased with the um, enrollment of non-white community members into the study. It's very high. Um, it's above 10%, which is much higher than than you would typically see on a national average. That's fantastic. And, um, you know, 
maybe a couple of thoughts. Um, when we think about even the name in our DNASC, it, it, you know, the goal would obviously be to have the sample collection look like our population. And um, so over 10% is fantastic, and yet it still doesn't fully represent um, the actual percentage of African Americans that we have in the state. Um, and you mentioned Henrietta Lacks earlier, which you know leads me to think about the fact that as as a nation, uh, we have some some ugly spots in our past in terms of um, how we have treated um, blacks and African Americans in terms of just medical care and attention. Um, so I'm I'm curious. Uh, how those things intersect, you know, and the sort of this history that we're overcoming um, as a factor that impedes our ability to enroll and what are some of the things that you and your team are doing to uh, encourage enrollment and to sort of really make sure that the population that we have in the state that you're targeting for enrollment in in our DNASC or just awareness about clinical trials understand the importance of their participation and the protective measures that we have in place now to so that history doesn't repeat itself. That is a fantastic question. Thank you. And um, those are some of the things that we've talked about with the NRDNA investigators, including Dr. Judge and Dr. Caitlin Allen. Um, so we have a signature program at the Hollings Cancer Center called Moving Up. It's our Train the Trainer Cancer Education Program. But we have a module on clinical trials and the importance of um, increasing diversity in cancer clinical trials. We we face in that in that module we face head on some of the atrocities of the past. So we review step by step what happened with the Tuskegee syphilis study, which some people believe should be called the U.S. Public Health Service syphilis study because that's the group that led it. But um, we go through point by point the atrocities that occurred, but we also talk about the protections that are now in place. And as a result of that um, horrible uh, trial, which actually went on for about 40 years, um, we now have consent forms. We have a whole consent process that did not exist before that. We have um, consent forms. We have data and safety monitoring committees. None of that existed to protect the rights of participants before before the, the Tuskegee study. And I always share my personal experience. Um, back in 1995 or I think 96 maybe, when at the time I had funding from the CDC and the National Cancer Institute to recruit black men to the prostate, lung, colorectal, and ovarian cancer screening trial. And so my, my colleagues and I were testing different recruitment methods to see which one would be most effective in recruiting black men to the trial. So I was invited to speak at the first um, ethics conference at what was then Tuskegee Institute. It's now Tuskegee University. And the conference went on for three days. And the attorney who represented the original participants in the Tuskegee study was there, and some of the surviving participants were there. And so on the third day of the conference, the attorney stood up and he said, the men, he called the participants the men, the men have asked me to speak on their behalf. And he said, we've been sitting here for three days listening to person after person talk about how few people of color there are in cancer clinical trials. And he said, quite frankly, 
the men are, are appalled because they are very proud of the fact that because of what they went through, there are all these safeguards in place now to protect the rights of trial participants. And he said the men are feeling that if people of color don't participate in trials, then what they went through is in vain. Wow. That's really powerful. Wow. And so after hearing that, that forever reshaped how I present community, uh, clinical trials to people. It just totally refocused my presentation on the safeguards, the rights, and the benefits. Of course, there are always risks of any trial, but all the safeguards that are in place to make sure that that trial never happens again. Those, tr those safeguards exist because of the men, and the men were proud of that. They viewed that as their legacy to research. And so that's how, how we present this in the, in the Moving Up program. Um, we've now reached more than 900, and, um, 900 people in the community across the state, and they've reached thousands of other people taking this message because we do use a train-the-trainer approach in this cancer education program, and they're taking the word out to other people. We know this works because we were recently asked um, by the National Cancer Institute to help recruit people to a trial that uh, is being led by the former dean of MUSC, Dr. Etta Pisano. It's called T-MIST. It's a tomosynthesis trial comparing 3D mammography with 2D mammography. And so we've, as we've gone out to the community, we've shared this information. 72 women from across the state, mainly from rural areas. We go to places like Harleyville, um, very small places across the state is where we've focused our efforts in this moving up train the trainer program and a lot of the effort is focused in the i-95 corridor which is often called the corridor of economic well i call it the corridor of economic disadvantage um 72 people called the hollings uh t-mist trial study coordinator to inquire about enrolling into t-mist so that was very exciting for us. What do you attribute that to? Why? Why? It's just the, the information's getting out there and it's actually landing? I think it's that we're going out to the community members. We're going where they live. So when we are moving up sessions, when they're in person, they're always on Saturdays because that's when community members are available. Right. They're, they're always in a trusted venue in the community. Mm. We don't recruit. We identify community leaders in each of the areas, um, and they recruit people to, the, to each of the moving up sessions. So we, we come and we bring the information, but I think it's that true partnership. It's that we're coming where, where the people are, and we're sitting down, we're rolling up our sleeves. You know, we're moving tables around, wiping down tables, getting everything ready for the community members so they can come into an event, a nice space. Um, we work with, with local caterers, so we try to give some um, economic benefit to, to the community as well. Um, and so I think when, when we just go with an earnest heart, I think it just resonates with community members. Like, we're all in this together. We're all part of the same state. We all live here. We all work here. We all play here. And so we go and we just share the information that we have and we invite them to participate. It's exciting to think that you can rebuild trust 
like that. I was actually just sitting here thinking personally that I love the phrase uh, going with an earnest heart, by the way. That's not a, a, a phrase that I've ever heard anyone use before. Um, I think community members can see when someone's going with an earnest heart and when we're open and we take questions and if we don't know something, we'll say we don't know, we can connect with other with experts here at MUSC to get them the information that they need, but we're there to help. And yeah. you know, we're we're in a shared it's a shared mission. Yeah, I like to I think I generally refer to it as courageous authenticity, right? You gotta be there being your authentic self I with mean, the information that you know, the information that you don't know, um, and a willingness to you know, acknowledge the hard questions head on. But um, I do like the phrase in earnest heart. It sounds like a lot of people are stepping up and, and coming forward and, and starting to trust the system, which in my mind means some really spectacular positive outcomes soon, sooner rather than later. Um, can you talk a little bit about the future? What do you predict um, if, if, if this, these initiatives continue to work the way they've been? I feel like some good things are coming. We are so excited on our team and at the Cancer Center. We do feel good things are coming. Um, we're developing great partnerships. We have um, the South Carolina Cancer Alliance, which is a, a huge uh, has a huge membership across the state. Um, it, it's it's led out of uh, the State Department of Health and Environmental Control. Mr. Henry Well is the executive director. I just was recently elected to the board, so that's a huge connection. We had our annual meeting recently and there were uh, participants there from all over the state. And so I think coming together, you know, we can really accomplish more together than we can alone. So we are very excited. Um, what, what moving forward, you know, as our, our COE, Community Outreach and Engagement Team at Hollings is expanding. So we, we've just recently tripled the, the members of our team from three to nine. Um, our catchment area is the entire state. So. If we were doing a lot with three, I can only imagine what we'll be doing with nine, just more partnerships, more initiatives, more programs. Um, Dr. Gerard Silvestri and I are part of a, a Stand Up to Cancer grant that was recently awarded um, in collaboration with Virginia Commonwealth University and UNC Chapel Hill, and that grant has two aims. Um, the first focuses on uh, using a patient navigation approach to bring more black people to lung cancer screening. And so that's very exciting because we're partnering with the Fetter Healthcare Network and we're um, working with Fetter to bring patients into MUSC for lung cancer screening using a patient navigation approach and a community health worker approach. The second aim of the Stand Up to Cancer Grant is a biomarker aim. So um, Dr. Silvestri and his team are leading that aim, looking for an early marker of lung cancer you know, maybe there's something, maybe a blood test that could um, potentially uh, provide an indication that someone's at risk of developing lung cancer. So that would be wonderful. <laughs> so he and I also just recently were awarded a Duke Endowment Grant. So that's allowing us to link with MUSC's regional health network sites. Um, most of them are in rural areas. So again, we'll be using a patient navigation approach to help increased screening rates at those sites. What we anticipate and our goal is to reduce the cancer burden in South Carolina. We want to see the mortality rates for black people not only reach the rates of white people in terms of mortality, but we want the mortality rates of both groups <laughs> to get as close to zero as possible. 
Can you talk a little bit more extensively about the patient navigator approach? Maybe kind of lay it out. Um, it sounds like the key to, to what's going on here. Yeah, I think so. Um, so Dr. Harold Freeman developed this approach in the 1970s when he was at Harlem Hospital. And he basically said that the onus or the responsibility of uh, for, of patients receiving care and coming in from the community to receive care is on the health system and not on the patients. So he actually co- uh, developed the term patient navigator back in the 70s. But I think when we're when we're dealing with rural, medically underserved populations, um, or populations where there may have be, be some type of historical mistrust, becomes really essential in helping to to uh, serve as a trusted source of information, emotional support, um, linking patients with financial counselors in the healthcare system, helping to link patients with clinical navigators. So we know um, patient navigators um, can can be nurse navigators or social workers. Um, in the clinical setting, nurse navigators f- form a really pivotal role in helping to follow up with patients, making sure patients don't get lost th- um, through the cracks. Um, sometimes a patient may come in for screening, have an abnormal result. If we can't find that patient to bring them back for treatment, um, their outcome may not be very positive. So we want to make sure that we can find them, bring them back in for treatment. Um, I just finished an R01 study, um, which is an investigator-initiated study from the NIH, and we tested a patient navigation approach in increasing the rates of receipt of uh, surgery for lung cancer among black people. Because uh, national data and our state data showed that um, black people were up to 50% or 42% in South Carolina, less likely to receive surgery for early stage lung cancer than white people. So those are deaths that um, could be preventable if people had surgery. So we developed um, a, what we thought was, um, a, uh, was a study that started with South Carolina and Georgia. And we only needed 200 people. And this was a five-year study. So I thought, wow, we only need 200 people. We're going to finish this in two years. We'll have to come up with some other aims. Well, it turned out we none of the sites had enough black patients with early stage lung cancer. All the sites had black patients with stage three and four lung cancer, but not stage one and two lung cancer. Even though we had done a one-year historical study when we submitted the grant proposal. So we ended up uh, working with the National Cancer Institute's um, National Community Oncology Research Program. Um, Dr. Warda McCaskill-Stevens is the director, and that was a, a game changer. We ran the study through Wake Forest University's Encore Research Base, and we ended up with 22 sites from Delaware to Nevada. It took 22 sites nationally to find enough black patients to recruit 200 with early-stage lung cancer. And we tested a patient navigation approach um, and we're, we're cleaning and analyzing the data now, but that really showed, that, that really also laid the, the groundwork for the Stand Up to Cancer grant, where it was clear that we need to reach outside of the cancer centers to the community 
um, primary care sites to identify people who are at risk and then bring them in, um, bring them in, bring them into our healthcare systems because otherwise we're we're missing the population. Marvella, you know, as we've heard, a lot of your work is really dependent upon strong collaborations with community leaders um, in terms of establishing just trust and your train the trainer model. Um, so, where have you found good sources of community partnerships? A lot of our community partnerships are with established groups in the community, such as faith-based organizations. So to give one example, we have a partnership with the AME Church, where Bishop Green actually wrote Hollings into their health ministry plan to deliver these moving up train the trainer sessions. So that was very exciting for us, and it's been a great um, avenue. We're working with Dr. Jacques Days, who leads um, the health ministry component of the AME Church, the 7th Episcopal District, and and with um, Reverend Claudia Lawton as well, who's been a great bridge to the AME community. We also work with Baptist churches. <laughs> so my pastor is the Reverend Nelson V. Rivers III, and he's been a great supporter of, of our programs at the Hollings Cancer Center. So we work with Baptist churches, Methodist churches. We are, we are working with... Um, fraternal organizations. We're working with um, uh, city organizations, um, such as the um, Urban League is another great partner. Um, So I think working with these established, trusted groups and organizations that already exist in the community and partnering with them helps to establish credibility of our team in the eyes of the community members. Yeah, I'm sure it goes a long way towards just positioning ourselves, as you said, like with an earnest heart um, earlier. Um, and I recall the very first uh, Lovello bike ride that we did that was sponsored um, by Hollings to raise money for cancer-related research. All of the stops along the 100 miles were all hosted by AME churches. That's um, right. And so I, I rode the, the 50 mile, um, but got to stop at three or four uh, different AME churches that were, you know, out, um, some of them pretty remote, um, but just a, a huge strong outpouring of support from individuals who were manning the tables there on behalf of the churches where we were stopping. So uh, that was my my own firsthand experience of this relationship that you and your team um, and Hollings in general have been able to establish with these faith-based organizations that seem to be creating some really meaningful outcomes for those who um, are in those communities. So thank you for that as well. Thank you. And we, so we heard that the uh, AME rest stops were really popular. They were really popular. <laughs> <laughs> they were very excited to be part of this, and we thank Reverend Claudia Lawton for that. <clears throat> we also have an amazing partnership with South Carolina State University. We have a U54 grant, which is a $12.5 million grant evenly split between MUSC and South Carolina State University, and we're submitting our renewal grant in January. It's due on January 6th, but that's been a great partnership. We also partner with other historically black colleges and universities in South Carolina, such as Voorhees University, Claflin University, and we're doing some work with Allen University as well. And I actually have an adjunct appointment at South Carolina State University as their smart state endowed chair. Well, of course, there is much work yet to do, but you have done so much great work so far, and you are spearheading really great things. And so we just want to say thank you so much. And we appreciate you being a part of the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
listening to the Innovatively Speaking podcast with the Medical University of South Carolina. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, leave a rating and review. To hear more innovative ideas and to share your own, subscribe to the show or visit us on our webpage, web.musc.edu slash innovation. And remember, don't hesitate to innovate.